Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries. I'm Justin Douglas. So happy you can join me for this episode of Beyond Boundaries. Please consider checking out the Patreon page and supporting the Beyond Boundaries podcast if you're able. That's patreon.com forward slash Beyond Boundaries podcast. You can also help by sharing, subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast. It makes a huge difference. Hope you enjoy this episode of Beyond Boundaries. I got a chance to interview Matthew Cortman this week. It was a great conversation about theology and his book, Saying No to God, a radical approach to reading the Bible faithfully. Yes, you heard that right. The title of his book is Saying No to God. If you follow through the episode, it will make sense, I promise. I will say this, it gets very theological at times as that is Matthew's primary background, but he does a great job making it accessible to those who maybe don't have a background in these areas. I hope you enjoy it and find it helpful. Here it is, my conversation with Matthew Cortman. I'm here with Matthew Cortman, author of Saying No to God, A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. Hello, Matthew. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on here. I'm doing great now that I'm here with you and with the audience. Yeah. So how are you doing amidst quarantine and everything? Uh, where are you located and, and how are you personally doing amidst this? I feel like we have to ask that first in this climate and just kind of make sure you're okay, you're doing well. Um, I'm, I'm okay, uh, thank God. Uh, so is my wife. Uh, we're currently out here in New Haven County in Connecticut. So um, I'm, I'm out here uh, finishing up uh, my program at Yale University, my master's degree, and uh, that's kept us out here. Uh, and uh, we've just been hunkered down, staying in the apartment, trying not to, uh, not to uh, expose ourselves needlessly when we don't have to. And uh, like everybody, just dealing with quarantine. My wife is uh, still an essential, considered an essential worker, so she still goes out. Um, but yeah, I mean, like everybody, we're all struggling through this strange time together and trying to uh, just write it out. Honestly, nobody's happy with it. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and am I right that you're graduating Yale Divinity School? I am. I'm graduating uh, from uh, the master's in Second Temple Judaism. Uh, I spent the last two years out here uh, roughing it through that uh, wonderful program uh, and uh and, and I'm actually going to be finished with it as, as hard and unbelievable as it is to, uh, to admit that or say that it doesn't feel real. I feel like, nah, I've just got to start another semester again. <laughs> Second temple Judaism. That's an interesting, uh, master's degree. Is that a, is that an MAR or what, what exactly is that? So Yale, uh, calls their masters, uh, MAR master of arts and religion. Mm -hmm. But, uh, I mean, most places would just call it an MA. You know, yeah. and then say you have an MA in this, you know, a master's of arts in it. Um, they'd say you have a master of arts in religion at Yale. They, they just put the religion into the acronym. Uh, but uh, yeah, so Second Temple Judaism is just, you know, for those that don't know it, it's way more literal than you think it is. It literally refers to the Second Temple period of Judaism when they rebuilt the temple. And so like there's just two temples. There's the first temple. Uh, that Solomon, you know, in the Bible is said to have built and lasted through the Babylonians destroying it. And then there's the rebuilt temple that lasts until the Romans destroy it. So when you study Second Temple Judaism, you kind of get the best of both worlds. You get to study uh, the Hebrew Bible because 
that is literally required to understand everything that's going to happen in the second temple. Um, and some of it was written during the second temple, like Ezra, Nehemiah, Chronicles. Um, and then you get to study all this apocryphal and pseudepigraphic literature, like the Book of Enoch and all this fun stuff that was written during this period of time, but may not be in your Bible. And then you get to study the New Testament largely because, you know, it's either stuff that is drawing on Second Temple traditions or it was written right at the end of the Second Temple or it's clearly deriving most of its stuff from the Second Temple. So it's a really great um, kind of topic that lets you kind of dip your hands into everything. And that's the main reason I even chose it. There's not many programs that usually let you do that. They usually want to put you in a box. You're either New Testament or your Old Testament, uh, very few give you the means of really specializing as best as you can in both of them. You don't have to do it that way. I mean, not everyone who does a Second Temple degree necessarily tries to do it uh, that much. But um, for me, that was what I wanted, and that's how I tried to shape the degree to give myself uh, as much wiggle room in between those Testaments as I could uh, because I just I love the stuff. I just love it. Can't get enough of it. That's awesome. And you have four bachelor's degrees in the, it just let me make sure I got this right. Theology, archaeology, philosophy, and screenwriting. And I feel like screenwriting is an interesting one. Uh, what made you go for screenwriting? So, <laughs> yeah. The, so for people who are like, how does somebody graduate with four degrees? Um, <laughs> who's like thinking they're like, maybe I want to do that. Um, one, make sure you go to a smaller school because they're way more willing to work with you. Uh, two, make sure some of your degrees overlap. So um, the uh, archaeology and theology degree had enough overlap that it wasn't killer to make them work. And then the philosophy uh, degree was um, interdisciplinary and uh, you got to independently build it with your advisors. So I was able to utilize uh, some of the coursework that didn't cross over between archeology span and religious studies also there uh, to fill out some of the electives. So um, yeah, I, I'd say that it was an interesting experience. Uh, the reason I went for screenwriting is that I'm not just uh, an egghead. I really enjoy uh, stuff that's not necessarily just facts or just history. Um, I love stories. Uh, in fact, that's one of the reasons why I love doing research um, on the parables of Jesus. I love doing research on ancient uh, pseudepigraphic narratives because I, I love stories. I love the imagination and I don't just like reading other people's stories. Sometimes I like to tell my own. I haven't published anything yet like that. Haven't managed to get a movie script sold yet, but I've I've got a few I've got a few things in the cupboard that I might eventually break out and God willing they might actually get made someday. Very cool, very cool. Did did screenwriting help you in authoring a book at all? Um yeah, I think I've started writing screenplays when I was 13 years old. Oh wow. Um, I, I, they were bad. They were Star Wars fan, <laughs> fan film scripts. Um, I, I, I still remember I did one that was like called Star Wars Sith War or something. Um, and I was trying to like, it, it, it was really bad. Like I remember <laughs> I, I wrote that one at, at 13 and I remember, um, I have it buried in my computer somewhere, but I remember somebody who read it was like, bruh, this is just like a two hour long fight fest. It was like, <laughs> 
Like it's just one, you know, and, and the best thing now in retrospect, when I read it years, years later, I'm like, oh yeah, he's totally right. Like <laughs> the plot's so thin. It's just one big, I literally took Sith war and made it like way too like literal rendition. Like, yeah, it's a war and a Sith. <laughs> it's everywhere. Um, <laughs> but no, I actually, I, I would say that it's kind of like a movie that I really hate. Um, the Mummy with uh, Tom Cruise. Sure. Did you, did you see that? Yeah, I think I did. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah it's forgettable. Um, and the, movie, <laughs> the movie is so bad because basically it just has nonstop action. Like there's no sure. breathing room. There's no conversations. It's just, <laughs> you're just on the edge of your seat. That's kind of like how I wrote that, that, that first Star Wars screenplay. It's like, there's no breathing room. You just, yeah. it's just one long chase sequence. Um, and then I tried writing, I remember uh, like an episode 3.5 where I was trying to imagine something like what eventually Star Wars Rebels, the animated show did, which was at least better because there were breathing room. But at the same time, like my early scripts were horrible. I'm just trying to underscore that. So um, they improved vastly over time. And the only reason for that is like everything, you just have to keep doing it and yeah. doing it and yeah. doing it so for anyone listening who's like enjoys random things that are different just keep doing it you know you are not going to become a great artist unless you keep working at your art for literally over 10 years and even then you'll only be starting to get good it just takes time so enjoy what you're doing because you're gonna have to do a lot of it <laughs> yeah it seems like everyone says that in the especially in the writing space of being an author that there's so much value in writing every day if you're ever going to consider being an author. Um, I don't even know. Even if, if you don't write every day, even if you don't, you have to just at least every couple number of months or at least every year, if you're young enough that, you know, that works okay. Um, you just have to write some major project. Write yeah. at least one novel if you can try to attempt one, uh, you know, every year, try to even just like half a novel that you never get through, right? Like every time that you keep trying and you have to, if you're writing fiction, you have to be reading fiction at the same time you do that mm. because it keeps your brain seeing how other people do it. And that keeps giving you ideas as you're writing it. So you have to like, I think it was uh, Stephen King in one of his books on writing that talked about that. You know, like you can't just go ahead and, and, and just write, you also have to be reading or else you'll just keep writing the same crap over and over again. Um, and that's true too for theology. Um, you know, if you're gonna write books about what Christians should believe and think and that matter to them, you're gonna have to be reading all the other books that are currently things that they read and think and think matter to them. If you yeah. don't, then you will literally be writing about stuff that no one cares about. And surprise, surprise, a lot of people do. You see it all the time when you walk, look at certain small Christian publishing houses, you see books coming out and you're like, who in the world did you write that for? Well, yeah. Who's and, asking and that a, question? I say that the all the time. Thing is, who's the asking funny, that question? <laughs> exactly. It, no, I mean, it's so true. But the funnier thing is for every book you find that you're like, how in God's holy name did that get published? There's at least 10 to 50,000 other books that were denied publication. Mm. Right. Like you have to realize like agents and publishing houses and so forth who go through this stuff, they see way more crud than they ever see something even potentially possible to get published. 
Um, so like, it's amazing when you think about a hundred, I think it's like a hundred thousand books period get published every, every year. And only about a hundred of them will ever become something. Mm. So that's already shocking when you think about like how hard it is to get a book to be noticed by people and pay it and paid attention to in any major way. But then also think that out of those hundred thousand books that get published, there's at least double that that didn't get published that never made it to, uh, to be considered because they were that bad. Wow. Um, so everybody wants to publish. Everybody has a dream and an idea. Not everybody necessarily has a good one. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and a lot of it has to do with how almost always the issue is both in fiction and in nonfiction. Um, do you actually have an idea that is both sane, logical, um, and attractive and actually fits a need that people currently have or an interest people want? Um, sure, you might have an idea that's crazy and radical, and that's fine, but you've got to make it somehow relatable to what people already think they want. You can't, you know, you, fine, you think they don't want the right things, that's fine. You've just got to find a way to package your idea in a way that then they'll still get the idea with what they want. You can't, you can't fight against what people want. The customer is always right by necessity of the fact they just won't buy your book if they don't want yeah. it. So, you know, it's, it's to your, you know, it's like, Paul, it's to your own best interest to be for all people, all things. Yeah. Uh, it really is. If you want them to hear your ideas, you are going to need to be relatable or else they will not relate to you. And I mean, this is true for theology, right? God becomes human so that we can actually understand what God's heart is because otherwise it's just a bunch of, you know, revelations supposedly that occurred on Sinai for one or two people. It's just a bunch of theological propositions and rules and how, what does it really mean? And, and then you get the incarnation and you're like, Oh, now I can relate. Yeah. Okay. So, so for your book, when I think of everything you just said, it seems like you got some pretty good reviews. I'll be honest. I haven't read it yet, but, um, Peter Rollins and Brian McLaren and some others uh, gave your book some glowing reviews. So why don't you share a little bit about saying no to God, a radical approach to reading the Bible faithfully? Why, why should people read that book or what will, what will they hear if they read that book? Kind of a synopsis, maybe an elevator pitch for the book. Well, um, okay. So this would, uh, well, first of all, those reviews are either good or terrible, depending on the audience. I've had, <laughs> I've had conservatives tell me, wow, this oh, got a review yeah. from Brian McLaren. Now I know it's heretical. And then, of course, for somebody else, the, calling the book heretical is what makes them want to buy it. So, you know, uh, but I, I'm very happy that um, I, the book has received pretty much good reviews from both conservatives, liberals, and uh, everybody in between. Um, I've had atheists who read the book and said uh, that it was wonderful and they remained atheists. I've had atheists read the book and tell me that they no longer can call themselves atheists and they, they cried throughout reading it. Um, I've had a gamut of reactions to this work uh, that I'm happy about. Very cool. Um, and of course, I've also had a few people who are just like, Peter Rollins is attached to this? No. <laughs> um, but yeah, so the book saying no to God, why would, I mean, I guess I should just put forward the question that uh, I had like the most liberal uh, progressive Christian publisher I know of uh, when I pitched the book once to them, um, the person who was there heard the title and just gawked and said, why on earth would I say no to God? 
And I was so shocked because this was like as liberal a Christian publishing house as you can imagine. So mm -hmm. I was really surprised to, that I was getting a reaction as if I was talking to like Tyndale or something. <laughs> I was like, yeah. wait a minute, this is an alternate universe. But then I realized at that point that the idea of saying no to God cuts across all barriers. It's one of those things that makes you realize that whether you're progressive or you're super conservative, you pretty much agree on certain things as foundational. And among those things tend to be the idea that God's authority is unquestionable. Mm -hmm. And that just seems to be a built-in idea. Um, what really that shows you is that the debates we currently have about conservatives and liberals on the Bible, it's not about whether the, you know, God's word is, is um, unquestionable or not. It's actually just that conservatives believe that they have the actual word of God perfectly preserved and liberals don't think so. It's not that liberals disagree with the approach that the conservatives are taking. They just don't think that what they have that they're approaching it as is actually the thing that they also acknowledge as God's word. So what you end up getting is uh, two people who actually agree, but just don't agree that in this circumstance it can be applied. So, the problem with that idea, right, is that what it demonstrates is that the doctrine of inerrancy, um, scriptural inerrancy, this idea, for those that don't know it by that term, the idea that the Bible is completely without error, can be totally trusted, you know, it's without error, inerrant. That idea isn't actually uh, that conservative. It's not that evangelical. Pretty much most liberals seem to presume that that would be true. They just don't presume the Bible's inerrant. They're, if you push them, they'll probably tell you, well, God's inerrant, but God just, I know the Bible isn't inerrant because that's not reflecting the God I believe in. Mm -hmm. um, and so they'll be like, okay, you know, I, so basically they accept the doctrine. They just don't apply it because they don't think it applies in this case. Well, that's kind of something that my book kind of takes a sledgehammer to on both the conservative and liberal side, which is why Peter Rollins in his endorsement said that this book basically moved us beyond conservative and liberal dynamics entirely, mm -hmm. because it just kind of takes a sledgehammer to inerrancy period, not, not whether or not it's in a certain context, but just the main idea uh, that my book puts forward is that the idea that God is, uh, that anything God says, if you knew for sure it was what God said, that it was inerrant, it was perfect that is actually heresy. That's actually anti-biblical. It's something the Bible says is wrong. And when people hear that, that tends to be a pretty shocking idea. To yes, them. 100%. So, <laughs> so there's people listening right now that are like, hold on, no inerrancy, what? And they're shuddering. Um, for me personally, I've gone on a journey to where I've lost the word inerrancy and I've largely replaced it with inspired. But tell me a little more about this taking a sledgehammer to inerrancy. If we do that, you know, that maybe potentially necessary deconstruction of the word inerrancy, what are we replacing it with and why is it better um, and, and or, or more faithful to what the Bible is? Yeah, I mean, the first step is to understand why would you take the sledgehammer? Like, what's the actual point? And the problem, again, that we, I, I think you can describe in a sense what we, what we see today with liberals and conservatives in their conversations is that we tend to go in circles, circles that go nowhere. 
and lead nowhere and people talk past each other and nobody grows from it and really uh, it's either time or age or any of those factors that eventually leads people to, to to walk out of that circle or go and join the other people it's not the actual arguments that are going on rarely seem to work for most people because they really don't lead anywhere and so the question is well why would you need a sledgehammer for the issue in the first place and the answer is usually given by the liberal side who wants to get rid of the inerrancy in the present. They'll just point to the Bible and say, oh, look, there's a problem here in the Bible. Oh, look, I think you can see a contradiction here in the Bible. Oh, look. And the problem with that, and let's get serious, the problem with such an approach is that, is that people are always going to have an alternative explanation for things like that. What looks like a, a contradiction to you, even something that genuinely is a contradiction, can be manipulated in someone's mind to be not. It is possible for someone to be self-delusional and, and to try and say, this is not really a contradiction. So the very fact that it's possible for somebody to deny contradictions, whether or not it's true, means it's probably not the best leading argument to give on something that that's not going to convince people who will not accept that. Can you give an example of a contradiction that exists in the Bible that people look past or explain away? Yeah. I mean, a, a great one would probably be um, because it's really, it's really easy to, to explain it uh, away um, is the gospel of John and the gospel of Mark and uh, Mark Jesus dies earlier than in John. Um, in terms of the timing on the day. So in Mark, as I remember, it's like 9 a.m. Uh, to noon, whereas in uh, John, it's from noon until like 3 p.m. And um, people will kind of gawk at that, but people will try to explain it away and they'll try to say like, oh no, like, you know, maybe it's, you know, he was on the cross from nine to three or, you know, it's, they come up with lots of ways to try and get around it. The, the answer is pretty simple for why it's obvious it's, it's an actual contradiction because um, John isn't really trying to be historical in that case. Like that wasn't his point. He's, yeah. he's presenting Jesus as the lamb of God. And so he's, he's trying to get that point across to people who already know the story. Like this is what people don't understand about John's gospel. John already knows that people he's talking to know about the story of Jesus. And, right? he, like and not, he has a motive. He has a, he has a message he's trying to get Well, every, across. every single yeah. gospel writer has a message exactly. that they're trying to do. But John yeah. in particular, isn't trying to tell this message to people who don't already know the story. The oral tradition is really widely spread. He may not have, you know, his audiences may not have the synoptic gospels we do. Mark, Matthew, and Luke might not be in those areas yet. But at the same time, they know the oral story. So they, they do know the tradition of when Jesus died and, and all those things to some degree, probably, uh, because it was so widespread in the, the accounts that we have. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, John seems to really be trying to get a spiritual angle on certain things. And one of those is, look, Jesus is the Lamb of God. He's come to take our sins away. Like he's really wanting to emphasize this. And so one of the things that he does to emphasize it is he changes the time of Jesus's death to match when they would have slaughtered the Passover lamb. Mm. Um, and, and so now wow. suddenly Jesus is literally the Passover lamb. Now the problem is like, John's not, doesn't seem to actually want you to believe. He's not assuming that like, this is the first time you've heard of Jesus and you'll actually believe he was killed at noon. Like that's not the point that he's trying to make. He's trying to tell people who probably already knew he, didn't die until noon, suddenly they hear a new time and they go, oh, 
oh, I see what John's doing. Oh, that's creative. Oh, he's trying to really get the point across, right? For some people, that's just a surprise to imagine that a gospel writer, uh, you know, is taking that kind of an approach. But the problem is, for some people, they just won't accept it. They just that just yeah. that idea that the gospel writer will be creative. It can be argued with. They can dismiss it, and that's why there is no single contradiction that could convince everybody there is one because people can be, you know, convinced that there isn't one and they just won't see what's not, you know, what they don't want to see. That's yeah. the terror of the human mind. We can not see things that are there just because we don't want to. So that's not where my book starts. I, I, there's no reason to begin with a contradiction. So right away, my book takes a completely different approach to the issue of inerrancy because I just go straight to a Bible story. In fact, a bunch of Bible stories that just answer the question straightforward in a way that most people have just avoided reading because the Bible stories I look at in my book are the ones that most people have had their pastors live their lives avoiding, have spent time trying to never touch because they didn't know what to do with them. And the reason they didn't know what to do with them wasn't even the reason that I was attracted to them. Uh, it, in fact, they were ignoring the part that was much more interesting. So to give you an example. Yeah, and I would like one. Gets right to the point. Exodus 32. The Israelites are down at the bottom of Mount Sinai. They're making a golden calf. Moses is up on Sinai with God, receiving the law. And uh, God turns in verses 7 to 14. Um, he just, he gets pissed. He's like, Moses, I just saw that the Israelites are making a golden calf. And you know what? Screw it. I hate them all. I'm going to kill every last one of them. I'm going to kill every woman, mother, child, the works. I'm eliminating mass genocide. I'm pissed as heck and I'm not going to take it anymore. And he tells Moses, get away from me. I'm going to let my anger burn wrathfully against all of them. Now, according to inerrancy and according to the basic, basic evangelical logic of how a true faithful person should be, if God tells you something's going to happen and it's his will and that this is what is right <laughs> and this is what should happen, then you have to accept it, yeah. right? Like think about how many times you have heard someone read the Bible uh, or maybe you haven't person who's listening in the audience. Some of you have experienced this where, you know, you, you go ahead and say, well, I don't think this passage in Joshua about killing the Canaanites is reflective of who God is. This doesn't seem like a good thing to have happen. And there will be some evangelical pastor or otherwise who's there in the room and they will say, no, that's not for you to decide. God in his ultimate wisdom decided to murder those Canaanite children. And that is his prerogative to do so. And we cannot question his ultimate justice, just as we cannot question his ultimate justice with hell or his ultimate justice with, with anything horrible, the Holocaust. But no, we will just accept. This is the logic. I'm not stretching it here, right? We, yeah. So if an evangelical was to take that logic that they apply to people reading about God's genocidal acts in Joshua, and they were to apply it now in this story in Sinai, and they didn't know how it ended yet. They're just watching it as it unfolds. They would probably say, oh, I'm supposed to go ahead and, and, and bow down and say, your will be done. You know, not my will, but yours, Lord. Okay, you know, you're the creator of the universe. I'm just dust. I'll just repent in ashes. Um, no, that's not what Moses does. Moses tells God, like my title, no, you can't do this. 
you cannot do what you said is your will. And the reason Moses tells God he can't do it is because it's evil. All the nations will speak of this evil that you are doing. And he tells God that you'll also break all your promises and you'll basically be untrustworthy to both me and to everybody else because you don't really stand by your word and who in the world would have a good opinion of you after this. And then the text tells us at the end that Moses, I mean, that God, uh, Yahweh, um, agreed with Moses. Agreed. And, and, and changed said, his right. mind, right? And, and then uses that phrase, changed his mind. And yeah. that is the main reason, that phrase, and changed his mind. That's the real reason most uh, evangelicals and otherwise avoid that passage, is they don't want to deal with the changing the mind part the funny thing that is when I was reading that story for the first time in undergraduate studies, I, that was not what was interesting to me. I mean, I know lots of people in scholarship who are very interested in open theism. They want to know like, okay, what, what is God's foreknowledge? All that stuff. That's I where I was care. going. That's where yeah, I was I going. Could care with this. Less. Yeah. I, I could, I could have cared less. That was not as interesting to me as was the fact that a human being told God no. And God was like, yeah, that was the right thing to do. That was way more interesting in terms of ethics and morality and, and who this God was than whether or not God knew ahead of time or not. That, like, that's an interesting question, but it seems like a more basic question is, what is the role and the relationship between the human and the divine in the story? And what does it mean for everyone else? Because in this case, we actually have a human being who denies God's will and God's will agrees with the human. And that, right there and then, destroys inerrancy. There is no way to recover it from that one single story. Now, and that's not only, it's not the only story. There's plenty other ones that are exactly like it. But that one single story eliminates it by virtue of what is known in logic as like the, you know, um, the exception will break the rule. Sure. If there is one exception to a rule, then it's not a rule. Right. It's just a, a probability. It's an average. It's a it's something that's usually the case, but it's not a universal, completely perfect thing. And that's what inerrancy is understood usually to be 100 percent live or die. It's definitely without error. So does and, that does that story in your mind make God a moral monster or does that story in your mind like I'm curious if you believe that to be an accurate representation of God, or if you believe the author assumed that would be God's response. Like, I guess what I'm saying is when you read accounts, especially of Moses, are you understanding those accounts as Moses literally standing with God, um, having a, a dialogue and um, literally writing that down, or is it being written down hundreds of years later after an oral tradition that has framed in essence, God wanted to do this or God should have done this. Um, but it was God's mercy along with Moses's mercy that ultimately won out. I guess I'm just curious how you reconcile that because obviously in Jesus we see, well, Hebrews, you know, one, three says Jesus is the exact revelation of God to man which also is an interesting passage to me in the sense that it seems like God's the way in which God has been revealed up to this point hasn't been exact. At least that's the way I read it. Um, and uh, in Jesus, we see the fullness of God. 
uh, at least I think these are largely Christian concepts. My question is, what do we do with those passages that do kind of make God look like a moral monster, even if inerrancy isn't, you know, uh, necessary anymore, like, or, or maybe never was, but, um, but is something that we take a sledgehammer to. What do we do with the character of God in that type of a story? Because it seems to me like um, if I'm just listening to that story, I'm like, well, if Moses wasn't there, God would have done that. And, and sadly, that is actually the perspective that you read in some of the early church fathers. Like they take that perspective when reading the story. They're like, wow, Moses is so cool because he was able to get God to be less hot headed. And exactly. it's just like a really, it's a really strange interpretation. Exactly. Yeah. It, it makes you sit there and go like, I mean, is what, what is this? Like what, what kind of view is this of, of God? But luckily that's actually not actually what's happening in the text. It seems there's something deeper. So like what I described there is like a very surface level reading. It's what's, what's there. It's what it says, but there are things going on there deeper. And it's interesting that when, you know, as soon as you see the inerrancy start falling, where did you jump to? Immediately you're jumping to, well, what do you do with it? Because it's funny, it's like, I see that all the time with people as they, they start to read the book. And that's how the book is, is actually uh, formulated, is to lead in exactly that sort of direction because everyone's questions end up going that way. And so I'm gonna go there, but there's something we have to figure out first before we could even answer that. Because there's something you said, uh, as I recall, unless you know I'm misquoting you. No, you're where fine. You, went ahead and you mentioned that, um, you know, this doesn't seem like this looks like God's a moral monster. And it looks like, um, like this isn't God's character, the one that Jesus comes to show. Well, I, I want to be clear. I, I'm more saying, I think that would be the knee jerk response. Yeah. yeah. If you I were understand. to walk into a typical evangelical church, share this, I think there would actually be a lot of people that would be open to like, Oh, I had never considered that. But I think for them, there's in essence, two sides to the coin either God is a moral, like almost like what you're presenting is an argument for leaving faith entirely. And, um, I, I think that's the binary world we live in. Unfortunately, I'm not saying I'm living there. Yeah. I'm saying most people, when you start, when you start applying these questions, which I think are really helpful questions, um, immediately go to the place of, well, if that isn't inerrant, then God must be a moral monster. Like, does that make sense? Like that? Oh, absolutely. That seems yeah. to be the domino effect. And so I guess I'm just asking, what do you do when you're met with that question? Well, I, I think to one degree, you should probably realize that Moses seems to kind of be working on the same issue, right? I mean, Moses is telling God in that passage, you're evil if you do this. Mm. Right. No one will respect. Right. We're already dealing with a moral monster from the perspective of Moses. And Moses in the story is representative of someone who has deep faith. So this is really already an important point for people who are, you know, digging into this and, and are believers to care like, OK, I don't have to think too many hypotheticals. I can just dig deeper into this text. What's going on with Moses? OK, sure. On the one hand, Moses is objecting to God, which is one interesting thing. How can Moses object to God? The other thing is to say, well, Moses stays faithful to God. So now the question to ask as well is like, well, what's going on? What is the relationship of faith with this resistance? And one of the things that you have to pay attention to is actually the fact that Moses uh, doesn't root 
his resistance to God in this case, in this story, out of his own autonomous morality. He doesn't go ahead and make this, this idea up because of his own convictions. Actually, what ends up happening is Moses is telling God that he can't act this way because God already had established his character opposite of this. So mm. one of the arguments, the two things he makes is you can't do this because it's evil. Well, what does that mean? It means that God is not evil. God is good. So God can't switch from good to evil. So already in the first argument, Moses has gone ahead and affirmed something about God's past in contradiction to God's moral monster present. The second thing he says is, well, you can't break your promises. So again, he's affirming that God is someone who says something and does what he says and means it. And he's also telling God that this is who he's been and this image he's dealing with at the present, this is, this is not it. And you can't be this. So to begin with, Moses is resisting God in affirmation of God. And this is an important point that Martin Luther, John Calvin, and others uh, who have been ignored on these points of the story, they wrote back uh, in their time and pointed out that this was the true key to the passage, that what you have here is Moses acting in faith against God. And this is why my subtitle of the book is A Radical Approach to Reading the Bible Faithfully. It's this idea of radically resisting God in affirmation and faith towards God. So what we have here is Moses taking these steps. And in fact, um, the, the story doesn't really just conclude there in verses 7 to 14. It keeps going. In chapter 33 um, onward, you have Moses and God kind of bickering with each other. And God keeps saying, well, these are your people that you'll take and I won't have anything to do with them anymore since uh, I didn't kill them, but I don't want to deal with them. And then Moses keeps coming back and saying, well, no, these are your people. And then God's like, no, these are your people. And it's actually really ironic. It's like a child's play. <laughs> and um, they keep going back and forth until eventually Moses says, you know, God, show me your ways. And what's funny about this, of course, in context is Moses already was resisting God out of affirmation for his ways that were before. And so now, in a sense, Moses is telling God, look, you have got to show me your ways. Like, what are you? Make it clear. Like, stop this. This is bipolar. What's going on? And what's fascinating is in the midst of this conversation, we actually have, um, we actually get uh, a note from the author in Exodus 33, I think it's 11, where it says that this is sort of, this is an example of God and humans in friendship, that this is what it meant to be a friend of God who mm. talks face to face. Wow. And so there's this real strangeness building up. Okay. Friendship with the divine bickering about God's ways. And then finally, what happens in Exodus 34 is you have this, this revelation of God and Moses hides in the cleft of the rock. God passes by, says, you can only see my backside. But really important, God gives a speech in which he defines what Yahweh's name means about his character. And the speech is, I am always forgiving, always merciful, always loving, always slow to anger, always. And you're sitting there going, well, that shit is definitely not what you were two chapters ago. And that's exactly the point. What you have in this three chapters of story is a depiction of God in which he is both uh, affirmed to have been before this good kind of character, suddenly acts out of character, 
And then the human responds by affirming who God's true character is. And then God ends up revealing that, yes, you were right. That is my true character. Now, that enters a whole new question, yeah. which is, why did God act out of character? If all of this ends up going to show us by the end that God affirms Moses knew who he really was, and yes, he really is all those good things, then the question becomes, why did this encounter even occur in Exodus 32, 7 to 14? What was going on there? If this is not really who God is, why then did God act that way? So this is where we end up going ahead and looking at um, the story of Jacob to try and get an idea of this. So Jacob in Genesis 32, he goes ahead and is by the Javik River. And suddenly he's attacked in the middle of the night by a stranger who it's, it gets translated as wrestle with, mm -hmm. but the, the word in Hebrew is actually, it refers to getting dusty, getting dirty. So it's like the idea of throwing someone so hard into the mud and you're rolling in it, like you're rolling in the dust. You, this is like fight for your life. You know, it's deadly. Um, in fact, the, I think the word is even uh, in the Greek when it gets translated, I think the word's used to refer even at one point in the Septuagint with dragons fighting. Like mm. this is a really, you know, this is an, an all out brawl. So in respect to that brawl, uh, they fight all night. And this man, quote unquote, that he's fighting with, the stranger, um, there's something strange about him. But the thing we're told is the stranger wanted to conquer Jacob or like came with the intention to conquer Jacob. And Jacob manages to withstand it. Jacob manages to hold it off. Jacob does not allow the stranger the ability to get the upper hand. And it gets bad enough that as the sun is beginning to rise, the stranger tries to kind of do a dirty trick. And we're, it's really hard to tell exactly what that dirty trick was because the Hebrew could mean that on the one hand, uh, Jake, uh, that the man goes ahead and touches the thigh uh, or the hip of Jacob and that this makes the hip suddenly lose its, its power. That's one way. In that sense, that would be kind of like a supernatural type of thing potentially. On the other hand, it could also be a euphemism, which means that the man kicked Jacob in his genitals, <laughs> which would literally be quite the experience of losing power. Yeah, um, yep. It yep. can literally mean both potentially, um, but you know, at the same time, maybe it's, it's intended to be the hip because you know, the, the writer later on says that this is why we don't eat the hip bone. You know, it's possible, but you know, it's funny that the, the story has this almost double meaning there. Didn't he walk sense. with a limp too for a while? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, part of, yeah. the, of the, the idea. So, I mean, it's interesting that maybe the writer in Hebrew wants you to see that touching his hip and making him go out is such a dirty move that it's as if he kicked him in his, you know, sure. you know what. Like, it's like, this is such a dirty trick. Like, seriously, you're not playing fair. I'm, I'm a human and I'm fighting as bad as I can against what I assume is a human. And you, you're just going to use some like powers and like knock, try to knock me out. Like, man, that's like somebody who went around and kicked me in the, you know, where, yeah. um, the funny thing is, is what the text tells us that Jacob still keeps the upper hand that even despite his injury, he is still keeping not only is he preventing this stranger from overcoming him he actually is able to prevent the stranger from fleeing 
That he's he's so in control in this battle that even in his weakness, that he's managed to prevent the stranger from even getting away. So he's holding on to him, not even just not even just fighting off him. Um, and it even says in the story that the stranger realized it was not possible to win. Like this is not going to happen. So the stranger goes ahead and tells Jacob, look, you got to let me go. The sun is rising. I have to leave. And Jacob, at this point, presumably, can now start to see something of who he's fighting with. And presumably, he notices that the stranger is not human or is not normal. And something's up. So what Jacob does, strangely, is he says, look, I am not going to let you go unless you bless me. Hmm. And then the angel goes, or the, the, the divine being, this person, stranger he's fighting with says, okay, your name's going to change then. Your name is changed as a blessing to Israel. And Israel means those who fight with God or God fighters. That's what the, the, the term means in the context of this story. And then he says, because you have fought God and you, you, Jacob, have prevailed. Not God, you, the human, prevailed. Mm. Yeah. So this is your name. Now, again, this story is crazy on so many levels. In fact, it might be the most heretical verses of all of scripture, because here we have it said explicitly that Jacob, a human being, defeated God, that this was pleasing to God, and that he will now be called uh, a God fighter, and all his descendants will follow in his footsteps to God's pleasing Right, like God's happy with this, that they will fight him and defeat him too. Interesting. This is a crazy, crazy story at first glance because it makes so little sense to us. Why would God want us to defeat him? Why would defeating God be a positive thing? And why would that be the act of faith? Right, like a whole people of God are being depicted here as enacting this story. This is what it means to be Israel, to fight God and win. That it just kind of blows you away. You're like, wait a minute. Yeah. That does. What am I? You know, forget the fact that it's totally contrary to popular uh, notions of religion. But what in the world do you do with it, even if you accept it? What does this actually suggest? And the interesting thing is what it's it's giving us a hint about. When God, when when Jacob is fighting this stranger, at some point he sees that it's God. He mentions at the end of the story, he says, oh, I've seen God face to face and I've lived. And um, the interesting thing is that Jacob is fighting God himself. God comes to Jacob as a curse. He comes to curse him, to overcome him, to attack him. And then as the sun rises and Jacob can see that this is God. Now, again, where's the evangelical logic? Oh, God is trying to resist me. God is punishing me. Oh, I should probably give in. I should probably get on my knees and ask for forgiveness. I should probably say, God, why have you come after me? Oh, God, you know, what have I done? I'm so sorry. Please forget. That's not what Jacob does. Jacob sees God and he keeps fighting harder. He sees God. And what does he say? He says, I'm not going to let you curse me. I'm not going to let you leave me even with the idea that you were going to curse me you are going to prove to me that you always intend to bless me. You're going to show that by blessing me now. Like, I'm not going to let you go unless you reverse this negative image you've given me. Mm. And yeah. then when you understand it that way, now it makes sense as to what it means to be Israel. 
the Israelites are those people of God who will see a cursing image of God, will wrestle with it, and not allow it to remain a curse, but instead demand that God show them the blessing. So here we see a real idea of how this story fits in with Moses. Now we start to get this idea that it's a test. Now we get this idea that God here is going through a certain kind of preset uh, pedagogy in which he wrestles with the human, fights with the human, either directly physically in this case or in the Exodus story uh, debate-wise. God is at odds with the human, but only because the human already knows who God is. And what the human's job to do is to affirm that God is opposite of this new image of God. Okay. Now, Martin Luther describes this uh, in the way of saying that God puts on the devil's mask to try and see if his follower recognizes the difference between Jesus and Satan. Mm. This is Luther's idea of how to explain that God wants to, the final test of faith and why these stories are all about people who were the biggest ones of faith is to say, all right, the last big step in faith is to know the difference between the God you really worship and his character and the gods around you. And so like with Exodus, with Moses, the question becomes, well, Moses, what if I start to act like the other gods? What if I start to do things like they do? Are you going to accept it just because I have some sort of authority or are you going to push back against it? Mm. Are you going to know the That's difference good. between Moloch and Yahweh? Or can Yahweh just act like Moloch and you go with it? Or is there something intrinsic to the character of Yahweh that makes Yahweh worthy of worship that you're willing to fight for and to know that this is the real reason why Israel should follow Yahweh? That's where these stories begin to point us to. Not that God is a moral monster, but that exactly like Moses and Jacob, we fight against any idea that God is a moral monster in order to affirm who God truly is. Gotcha. So, so it's, it's not God having a crisis of identity as much as it is God ensuring that those people have a correct understanding of the identity of God in comparison to the false gods of their time or exactly. the, the shadow gods, whatever you want to call them. So would it's you say the character of God so well that when something starts to go against that character, you know something's wrong. You don't go with it. You fight it. And in the same way, Luther also writes in another place where he says, you know, if God came to me and said, I'm, I'm taking away all my promises of salvation, I'm taking away all the descriptions of my love for you, I'm doing away with all of it and casting you to hell. Um, Mo Luther wrote, he said, I would have absolutely no obligation in faith to agree to God, obey God, believe in God, do any of that. I would quite the opposite, have the obligation by faith to fight as hard as I could against God to defend what God had obviously told me before that was true. Mm. In other words, like you must know the character yeah. of the one you love. Like, you know, imagine it not as divine, but as just human relationships. You know, you 
you fall in love with someone or you love your mother or your sister, you know their character, you create a strong bond with them. And what is a famous trope in movies when you see characters who go off the way or, or seem to go different paths? You know, it's believing, no, I know that this, this person of mine won't, hasn't done this thing. I know my wife could never commit murder. No, I know that my, my you know, and sometimes as yeah. humans, that proves not to be the case. But in the Bible here, what we have an example of is this conviction that defines the people of God, that no matter how bad it looks, no matter how devilish at some point God's image begins to appear, the true people of God will fight to know that that's not truly who God's character is. Would we you, know God better than that. Would you say the story of Hezekiah is a test? Like the story where uh, where the prophet comes to Hezekiah and tells him he needs to get his house in order because he's going to die. He's the king. And then he cries out to God and is given more life. I've, I've always heard that as a, as, as a way, in, another way in which God changes his mind. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I think it can be understood in that sense. It's, it's, it's difficult with some stories like that because you're dealing with, um, if it is dealing with the idea of a test, it's dealing with it at such a assumed level of knowledge for the reader uh, who was hearing it, that you, it's not being made obvious. It's one of those things where, you know, there's no, they're not like these stories where there's a silver bullet there to tie it in. Sure. Um, so it's a little hard. Like we can read it that way legitimately, I think, theologically. Um, it, it definitely helps to make sense because I, I understand there are people out there who will want to argue that maybe God can change his mind. I'm not arguing against that. I'm not trying to say that that's not the case. I'm just saying that when you start looking at these stories, and this is the real key, uh, you start putting them together one after the other, there's a motif that starts to form. And this motif stays pretty, pretty much the same. There's another version of the story that takes place and I covered in the book with Abraham uh, in Genesis 18. And again, the same motif occurs again. God seems to act opposite of who God is. Abraham calls God out and says, this isn't like you. And then they bicker. And then it turns out that God was exactly who Abraham always believed he was. Like this is a motif that is repeated and not just in the Hebrew Bible. It also appears in the New Testament with Jesus on two occasions. So what that tells me is as much as people want to have questions about open theism and in regards to what's God's foreknowledge and how can he change, these stories don't seem to actually be good candidates for looking at that. Because if, these, if this motif is really there, and I think I, I make a good argument for it there in my book, then you start to realize that this is more a facade than it is actually any description about God's foreknowledge. This is, as Luther called it in another place in one of his commentaries on Genesis, this is a game that God is playing in order to see whether or not his followers are actually paying attention. And, and the way I would describe it more modern would be it's like a teacher who's teaching a classroom, saying a bunch of stuff, their eyes are rolling, and he goes, huh, I wonder if anyone here is actually listening to me. And so the teacher starts saying the opposite of everything he's been saying to try and see mm. if any student will raise their hand to say, wait a minute, that doesn't make sense. Ah, well, you were listening. Yay. You know, you object it. No one, no one contradicts him. Uh, darn it. No one's paying attention. No one, no one's listening. Mm, okay. So, you know, that's, it seems to be in this case that um, what we're, what these stories point us in the direction of is that 
Israelites had some very interesting nuanced ideas. Now, I'm not saying that there are no stories in the Bible that seem to contradict this idea. There are stories in the Bible where seemingly God is presented in a divine command model where God says it, and that's the only reason you're supposed to do it. And if you resist, you're damned. Those stories do exist. Uh, they're, not as, they're, not as, they're not as elaborate. They're not as theologically deep, but they're, they are here and there uh, scattered throughout some of the Old Testament. Um, they're referenced sometimes. So for instance, like uh, Rebecca's parents in Genesis, um, when uh, the servant from Abraham comes, uh, they say, well, if this is a thing that comes from Yahweh, there's nothing we could say either for or against it. Like that's a good example of yeah. this opposite mentality. Like I cannot have an opinion morally on anything that involves God because I'm human and he's God. Um, and you see this uh, in other places as well uh, in a couple places. So Here's give the me the important point. Though. Oh, go ahead, the go important ahead. point is that even though there are these other texts, so somebody could sit here and go, Oh, well, on the one hand, I have stories that show humans fighting God. On the other hand, I have stories that say that that's impossible. Well, it's not an equal 50-50. And that's what I was alluding to earlier when I said about inerrancy being broken by the idea of the exception breaks the rule. We know that basically it doesn't matter if you have some texts that say it can never happen and you have some that say, yes, it can. Once you have those that say, yes, it can, the other ones are basically invalids. They no longer have the power anymore because if you can't hold both as true, you can't. It's not possible to say that it is both possible to turn left and at the same time turn right. You, you have to make a choice. So once you have one that says, no, you can never argue with God, but then suddenly you see you can argue with God, the former doesn't matter anymore because whatever it's saying, it can't possibly be universal because there are exceptions where it can happen. And that's why the book tries to take this approach in the way that it does, because it's trying to say, okay, not only can we start to remove inerrancy as a doctrine, but we're doing it through scripture itself. We're understanding that the Bible itself is undoing the very foundational idea of inerrancy. It's not that inerrancy is not in the Bible. It's not that that idea didn't exist in Israel. It's that it wasn't the only idea and the Bible we have doesn't allow it to be the main idea. So, so instead, we're asked to kind of reevaluate, well, if God's exact words to Moses are not inerrant, and if God's exact words to or, or actions towards Jacob are not inerrant, and in both cases, they were required by faith to fight back, then the question becomes, okay, well then, is there something inerrant about God's character that each of them are fighting for. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely interesting. So you've quoted Luther a lot. Do you think Luther believed the Bible was inerrant? I mean, sola scriptura. I mean, obviously, that's not necessarily the doctrine of inerrancy, but curious uh, what you think he, as a product of his time, believed around that. Oh, yeah, I think most definitely Luther. L when you read Luther's writings on this topic, which, again, not many people have really tried to study uh, these aspects of his writing. But when you do, you know, I think there's one place where Luther's like, oh, well, if we if we thought this, then it would be to suggest that there's a mistake and we can't possibly do that. Um, like like Luther has a, a sense of his time in which he assumes that to be scripture, there can't be a mistake. But it's not 
it's not as simple as like evangelicals tend to think of it. So for instance, when he's debating whether to include the book of Judith in scripture, because he wants to include Judith from the Apocrypha as a canonical book, uh, but he struggles with it because seemingly there's aspects of its history that don't match up. And, and so he debates it in his preface to it. And he says, well, you know, if, if it's an actual historical book and it's making mistakes, then that would discount it from scripture. But then he goes, oh, but there's another suggestion that the book's actually a parable. And so all of, this, uh, all of these mistakes are symbolic. Oh, well, in that case, it would be totally acceptable as scripture because it's uh. not intended, it's a fable. It's not intended to be uh, a, a history book. So like for evangelicals today, like a lot of them would think, no, I can't imagine the book of Jonah as a fable, as a fiction that's, that's holy. Yeah. But for Luther, he would be okay with that. He just, his problem would be if the author intended it to be history. But if the author didn't intend it to be history, he's like, oh, okay, well then, you know, factual errors are, are, wouldn't be an issue. Um, so Luther has an idea of inerrancy, but it's, it's removed from the current version that a lot of evangelicals show. And it's not, um, and, but it's also not completely, you know, logical. Like he won't, he admits he's not going to allow himself to imagine uh, the ramifications of what these ideas really imply. Uh, so even though he's laying off, he's pretty much providing all the foundation for what I'm talking about here. And what I'm saying is very much in agreement where he and I would have a problem is that my book says, okay, here are stories in which we see this happening. Here are stories that reorient our vision to God's character. Now, what does that mean for us when we're reading the Bible? Now, if do you... Moses and you know Jacob can directly wrestle and argue with God directly, what about people who are reading other people describing God? Can they wrestle with those words? What can they do with the Bible as another step removed from God when they disagree with its descriptions of it? Yeah. Now, do you um, tell me about those parts of Jesus, for example, you had said there was a couple times where you saw this motif. Um, sure. In there's Jesus the story, as well. Uh, there's the story of Jesus with the Canaanite woman in the Gospel of Matthew. It's also repeated in the Gospel of Mark, uh, but she's called the Syrophoenician woman. Uh, but in the story of Matthew, it's, it's much more elaborate and it, it, it has the motif much stronger. Um, in that story, you have a woman um, who's described as Canaanite. So basically from the outset, Matthew wants you to know this is as far an evil, Gentile, you know, unclean person as the Bible knows of. This is, these are the people, the Canaanites that God supposedly wanted to wipe out and kill every last one and not allow a single one to exist in the future. Uh, but clearly, apparently didn't get his way because there's one already here. Um, <laughs> and so what ends up happening is the woman comes over to God and says, well, I, I, my daughter is, is dying. I need you to, to heal her, please. Now, the funny thing is, in the Matthew story, she's just crying out after Jesus. And Jesus and the disciples are walking. Um, you know, in Mark, they're in a house. But in Matthew, they're just kind of traveling. And uh, the disciples come over to Jesus and they're like, hey, what's going on? What, what is, you're not sending her away and you're just letting her call out, out after us. So if you're not going to heal her, send her away. 
she's annoying us. Like, what the heck are we supposed to do here? It's, it's, it shows you that this has been going on a while when we get to the story. She's just been following them. So eventually Jesus goes ahead and turns back and says basically point blank, I was only sent to the lost sheep of Israel. Now the woman apparently doesn't get the clue because she comes right on up to Jesus and keeps begging. Falls, somehow she runs ahead of the group and falls down in front of him. So like that was some fast running and speed and, and deliberate action. So now she's in front of him. Now she's preventing him from walking further. Now she's, you know, begging him. And Jesus says, look, here's my logical dilemma. He presents a, a zero sum game problem. He says, look, let's imagine miracles are like bread and you understand me as like a father and Israel is my children and you, well, darling, you're a freaking dog, okay? Let's just get that straight. Like everyone's always called you. You're just a mangy dog, okay? Mm. Now let's imagine this situation, all right? All right, Canaanite woman, let's imagine this. What good parent would give their food, the miracles, to the dog as opposed to their children? I can't rightfully, ethically give you the miracle because I need to feed my own children. That is what's required. Now, he's presenting it a zero-sum game. It cannot be both. It can only be one. And what does the woman do? The woman rebuts Jesus. She tells Jesus, nope, you are wrong. And then she proceeds to tell him why he's wrong. Because the children are messy eaters and those crumbs eventually fall down. And those dogs lick it up. So they might not get the food direct, they might not even get the food in the exact whole variety like the children do, but they do get it. They get something. They don't just go without. It's not that simple. It's not that clean. Mm. And what does Jesus reply back? He says, in Mark, he says, for saying that, for rebutting me, for arguing against me, that's the reason your daughter will be healed. In Matthew, he says instead, um, because of your faith, she has been healed. But what's interesting here is that faith in this sense is not the faith that we're used to thinking of. This isn't like, this is more like the faith of, of Moses in Exodus, the faith of Jacob in, in Genesis. This is a faith of resistance. Like the this boldness the woman, to challenge, the boldness Yeah, the to boldness challenge. to believe, and also the boldness to believe that Jesus would hear her and yeah. listen to her uh, in the rebuttal, that, that there was a, an ability to reason with Jesus um, and not like he was an ideologue who wouldn't listen to what mm. she had to say. And clearly Jesus is excited. He's happy as anything that the woman has gone ahead and rebutted him, right? Which is also the shocking element of the story. It's not like this isn't something that doesn't meet Jesus's approval. This is exciting for him. And what really is interesting in Matthew's gospel is that um, Jesus had in chapter 10 earlier when he sent the disciples out, he had told them the same thing. He had told the disciples, um, only go to the lost sheep of Israel, stay away from the Gentiles. And they had not rebutted him. They had not fought him on that point. So now here they are, he repeats the same teaching, except he's rebutted and he ends up telling the girl that she's right. Now, if you see this through the motif of the theological fights that we saw with, ex with uh, Moses and Jacob, what we're hearing here is the really interesting point. I wanted this woman to fight me. And guess what, disciples? You didn't fight me. Yeah. I told you this. You didn't say one word. 
you didn't find any problems with it. And look, she has more faith than you do because she fought me over it. Mm, Now, the other time we see this, the same motif is in the Gospel of John. And there it's really strong because obviously John is depicting Jesus as God explicitly. So there's real room here to like connect the two. So in John chapter two, you have the, um, you have Mary, his mother at the wedding in Cana and uh, the Mary comes over to Jesus and says, Hey, what do we do about, you know, the wine? What do we do about the fact that the, the party is having this issue? The wine's running out. <laughs> and Jesus says, you know, woman, it's not my time. And people try to really like, they try to argue that the woman is the, the, the term woman is not supposed to be disrespectful, but honestly, it would make sense if it was given the motif. Yeah. It would make sense that Jesus would be acting atypical. So in this case, Jesus says, it's not my time definitive. So this is not, again, unlike Matthew where Jesus is not explicitly God incarnate. It's more, there's a little bit more wiggle room here in John. It's not. So when John has Jesus say this, it's direct. This is God telling Mary, this is not God's time to do this. So now what you end up having is Mary turn away, go to two servants and tell them whatever he tells you to do. And he's going to tell you to do something, go do it. Yeah, this is really important because (laughs) what has Mary done? She's ignored what Jesus said, which is definitively, it's not my time. She assumes he will do something. So again, we have this motif of in which God uh, acts in a way that's contrary to the expectations of the human and the human still insists the opposite of this present out of character experience. And so what ends up happening, of course, is Jesus really does end up doing something. So apparently it was his hour, right? And this has always confused commentators. Like, why why is Jesus acting out of character? Why did he say one thing and now he's doing it? And, you know, some Catholic theologians have tried to argue, well, it's because of Mary. Mary managed to get uh, the, the Jesus to act in ways that he wouldn't otherwise have. Um, and I agree in the sense that Mary's a big part of this, but it's not because it's Mary. It's because of the motif she is affirming something about God despite the seeming contradiction of God not wanting it. And so in that sense, then, what's so amazing about these these multiple stories is that we start to see an image of even Jesus as the incarnation of God enacting the very same methods of teaching that we see already in the Hebrew Bible with Yahweh. God, in this case, um, and what's really fascinating too, is that in John's Gospel in chapter 7, the opposite ends up happening. Um, He's with his brothers um, and the brothers are like, Hey, come with us to this party. And Jesus says, no, it's not my time. And again, it's like, it's the same wording. So it's almost like parallel. And, um, and so the brothers go, all right. And they leave. And then it says, Jesus goes anyway, secretly. So it's like, no, once again, it was not really not his time, but you're left with the impression that the brothers failed because they didn't actually try to push back. Mm. They didn't try to do anything. So they miss out on being uh, a part of the blessing because they're willing to accept uh, a disappointing image of God. I and like that's really kind of important then in that sense. It's like for yeah. practical application, uh, when people are faced in the Bible with a disappointing image of God, how are they going to react? Are they just going to accept it or are they going to resist it? I like what you said there about method of teaching. I think it's interesting to consider that we've gone through the age of enlightenment and 
we tell stories very different on this side than in the ancient world. And I, I'm just curious, you obviously have a screenwriting background too, but so you could maybe even speak to this from that perspective of like, for us, we seem to be very concerned with things like facts and stories. But at the same time, when we read our kids Aesop's fables, we don't really think the animals, we don't believe animals talk, but yet we still read the stories as if there's power in them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, and I feel like there's part of that in the Bible that is really necessary. And not that I'm saying the Bible's fables. Uh, I'm just simply saying like the goal of the writer was often not literal fact, but maybe trying to get across a point that that connected and grounded you to something deeper. Like what you said about John with, hey, this this hour had significance. So everyone knew Jesus didn't die at this time, but saying that actually connected and grounded you to this transition from a temple sacrificial system to seeing Jesus as the sacrificial lamb for all. Like there's power in that, but we often miss that because we're more interested in the facts. Do you see that to be true as you've watched largely the evangelical community interpret the Bible or am I off in, in that? No, I think that that's very true. But what I love about these stories is that it doesn't matter what your disposition towards them is. Like if you believe that this is fictional and it's just trying to give you a picture of God or whether you think that these really did happen, it won't change what the story is telling you. It won't change. It won't do you any injustice. Yeah. It won't diminish the story either way. It's not going to highlight the story either way. Both ways of reading it will be completely legitimate in terms of what you walk away with theologically. Okay. And that's really rare sometimes to find that you can genuinely sit down, whether you're a total, as far left progressive as you can get on the spectrum, or you're as far right radical extremist as you get, you will have to come to these stories and find that you're pretty limited in terms of what the message comes out of these. Because you either assume that the story is telling you that God's bipolar, and you ignore the fact that there's all this affirmation going on. So you just take the shallow reading. Or you do affirm, like Luther and others and myself, that there is this deeper sense to it. In which case, again, what is the message? And the message is simply this, that you as a Christian cannot simply say, thus saith the Lord. That is not enough. Mm. You will have to know what Lord you are quoting. And you will have to know whether that quote fits that Lord. And you will have to know whether or not that's the Lord you're worshiping. I, I, I absolutely love the idea of a teacher who is teaching a certain way and then checking in with their students as a way of measuring whether or not they're following by um, exposing them to a different character to see if they've come to know the actual character of the teacher. And when I think of this as the disciples, one of the things I think Jesus is pretty consistently trying to do is expand the disciples' um, love, concern, inclusion of those that they've been taught to other. And I mean, I could just 
say Samaritans in general. And I think you can see um, that, that, I mean, I love the woman at the well story where Jesus sits at a well and then sends the disciples in to get food. And it's like, these are, this is pretty early on in Jesus's ministry. And uh, these are young, you know, teenage boys. And he's sending them in to interact with Samaritans in a even economical way like you know um and they yeah. they've got to be afraid they've got to be quite fearful because everything they've been taught based on what we know of that time was that samaritans were the enemies uh and they would have probably had quite a bit of bitterness hatred um and, and felt like as they were going in and interacting with samaritans that uh they were being hated at the same time by them, you know, and so, and they would have, and they would have, they would have, exactly would have been Samaritans. there thinking the exact same thoughts towards them. Exactly. And so Jesus puts them in that situation and doesn't give them the coverage of himself to be a buffer. Um, and I, I always found that fascinating. And then during that time, Jesus is sitting with this woman and revealing himself as the Messiah, at least in the book of John for the, for the first time to a Samaritan woman at a well, who seems to be in multiple or has been in multiple relationships. So, you know, adultery would be in her past, it would seem. And, and you're just sitting here like, this is about the furthest, furthest likely person that would see the revelation of the Messiah for the first time. Like if you were to ask, you know, someone, who do you think will know first? Well, it'll be the the Pharisees or the Sadducees or, you know, I'll the agree. I, I have to stop you just for yeah. a moment. But yeah. I, I don't lose your thought, but no, I agree with you that, in her in that time period she would have been probably considered one of the least likely but i do want to point out um that although what you were just describing about her with adultery is an often used interpretation the truth of the matter is it's unlikely that that's necessarily the case because in her case as as a as a woman her story about one husband to the next basically means she's being divorced yeah so so each husband she had was basically saying well you're not good enough and then they filed for divorce and so the current yep. husband she's with, but is not actually her husband that Jesus references, it's basically meaning that this man uh, will not take responsibility for her. So not only has she been divorced by all these other men who refuse to keep responsibility for her, but even this one is worse than all of them because he won't even commit once to her. Mm-hmm. And she's stuck in a position where she's dependent on being in this situation to survive. So yeah. it's not it's not per se that that she's being accused of adultery or even implied with adultery. It's more the issue that she is so marginalized. She has been so uh, uh, penalized by the patriarchal society that she's in that she has absolutely nowhere to turn. And she's not even in a legalized state where she could have any power whatsoever. Like she's not even under a man. Yeah. She's she's required to work with a man that she can't even legally be protected under. No, so that's a good, that's a, that's yeah. a really so good. So she's really marginalized. Yeah. Like, I mean, my professor in New Testament, when I was an undergrad, uh, Dr. Kundra Holoviak Valentine, she, she really drilled that into us because of students who were quoting that interpretation. I've never forgotten it. Like this, this woman really gets a bad rap sometimes in, in certain circles because we misunderstand that this is, she is really screwed over. Yeah, and really I, I guess I guess what I would say is within her culture, she was probably seen in that Definitely. way as an Definitely. adulterer. But I guess I'm saying like we would not necessarily in our current context see her that way. Uh, not neither here nor there. I do think she's incredibly marginalized, and it seems as if her dignity and self worth is at an all time low 
based on the social standard. She's drawing water at noon. Who's drawing water at noon? Right, the hottest time right. of day. She's she's she has no social circle. It would seem uh, when when the women in the morning and the evening go to draw water, she's either she's probably not allowed to draw water with them or just feels so marginalized if she was to go with them uh, right. or bullied or whatever. You know, like it just seems like the the author is painting this picture of Jesus interacting with somebody who you can see as the most hated or or you know at the margins person and i don't know and sending the disciples away too i mean think about like in the story of the canaanite woman what are the disciples doing they're annoyed with the woman because she's crying out after them right so they're they almost get in the way but in that case it's to serve a purpose but here it's almost like jesus is like nah let's let's get the disciples and their prejudice out of the way temporarily so i can I can do some work with this woman and, as and, opposed to having them interfere. And by the way, it does seem to be that he, he's not actually hungry because when they bring the food back, he doesn't eat it. Exactly. Like, like, and so he is just trying to get him out of the way. And part of it is that I think he's trying to have this intimate moment with this woman, which I think is interesting because wells tend to be spaces of intimate moments. Um, there's some people that say, uh, will you give me a drink is actually kind of like a pickup line in ancient yeah, culture. Yeah. I'm not thinking that he's doing that, but I think what he's doing is that in a sense that in an intimate sense of applying worth, value and dignity to the woman and actually saying, I see you like um, I, I just think it's a very interesting story. But I say all that to say the disciples kind of come back and they they. I think if I recall the the way the story goes, and by the way, I don't have a Bible right here with me to open it, but me neither. I I feel like, I feel like the way the story ends, or at least that particular encounter ends is that the disciples saw him with a woman at at a well, which is kind of a position. No rabbi should be in alone with a woman and especially a Samaritan woman at a well. There's all kinds of potential things maybe in the back of their mind, but none of them asked him about it. Like no one challenged him. And I think it's interesting that we don't really ever see the disciples challenge Jesus or maybe, and, and, and I say that as a blanket statement, wondering if maybe I'm, I'm missing a, a time in which one of the disciples challenged Jesus, but I do see Jesus challenging them when he's like, you guys have been in school with me for so long. Have you not caught who I am by now? Like when they're fighting on the road about who's going to be the greatest. Yeah. And he's like, come on guys, we've been talking about this. Or, or I think of even the time where, you know, the sons of thunder want to call fire down on Samaria. And this is toward like the end of Jesus's ministry. If I recall, it's like, and, and they're they're And Jesus is like, have you been paying attention? Like, this isn't the way we respond, like it, it, to, to call fire down. Like that's not my response. Um, I, I guess I'm just curious why why don't we ever see the disciples challenge you know why don't we ever see that motif at play with the disciples do you think they're just i'm curious yeah no no it's it's very interesting so um you actually have one instance where peter challenges jesus which is when jesus says i have to die and peter goes ahead and takes jesus aside and says you can't do that now, what's interesting is my book doesn't just cover the stories uh, in the Bible where humans win against God. I also have an entire chapter about stories in which humans totally don't win in the Bible. And what's interesting about those stories is there's a similar motif to the ones of winning. 
And that is that every time that a character loses, it's because they start fighting for things that aren't God. Mm. So they start affirming things about God that are definitely not part of God's character as revealed in Jesus. So in the case of Peter, for instance, Peter is fighting for his vision of authority and rule and yeah. power and destruction. So he's calling Jesus and saying, no, you know, you can't do that. You're these things. And then what does what Jesus turn to Peter? He says, well, you know, you're, you're Satan. You're acting in that mode. You are not, in fact, uh, in, incarnating the character of God in you. You have something else in you that you're trying to project onto me. Um, and what's interesting is, again, like that's the only example we have of, of Peter doing that. But then we do get Peter again in the book of Acts where Peter is on the rooftop and God sends him a vision of uh, unclean animals and God says, go and eat and, you know, kill and eat. And then Peter says, no, God, I can't because your law forbids that. And, and so now we have, again, another example of him uh, going ahead and fighting him. And then they fight, fight. And then God says, look, you know, what, what I declare clean to you, you cannot go ahead and tell me is not clean. Right? Mm. Like if I, if I break my law, you can't go and uh, for the purpose. And in this context, the context is that the animals aren't really animals. They're, they're Gentiles. They're, they're, it's a message to Peter to overcome his prejudices. And um, the point that God's making here is like, look, you, you can't, it's wrong to defend the things that I've said in the past to fight people and, and kind of instill prejudice. You're going, if I am showing you a better way, even if it contradicts what I've said in the past uh, or seems to the image of God you've had, you should be letting go of that past image and moving forward towards this progressively better revelation of God's will and love. Um, and it's interesting though, that in both cases, Peter is always, def he's always fighting against the wrong thing when mm. he does it. He's it, either fighting to, against Jesus's death or he's trying to fight against Jesus's more inclusivity. And it kind of demonstrates that the disciples um, are always getting it wrong. They're, they're <laughs> always in this mode of misunderstanding yep. and mixing up what God's will is with what their will is. Um, and funny enough, I think what's more interesting is that in the Hebrew Bible, right, that motif of winning against God is always men. And then you come to the New Testament, you have two stories of it with women. And I do find that it's mm. interesting that the disciples who are men are always getting it wrong. I don't know what to make of that, but it's a funny coincidence that that's how the tradition ends up getting carried on. But in fact, not in the New Testament, but in um, a relatively kind of early apocryphal document from the second century called the uh, Secret Book or the Apocryphon of James, you have an account uh, which is supposed to be like post-resurrection where you have, and again, for those that aren't comfortable or not aware of people citing apocryphal works, it's quite common in academics to talk about what early Christians believed by citing these books sure. and showing like the ideas that they preserved in them. So the fact that I'm citing it isn't telling anybody who's listening that I think it's real or it happened. It's just an idea of how early Christians were trying to think through these things and the stories they told. So in that context, this story that it tells is about Jesus after the resurrection coming to the disciples. They're all writing down their thoughts and ideas, and he takes Peter and James to somewhere else to talk to them. And it's interesting that when he's talking to them, he goes ahead and mentions, um, he, he contradicts himself. Like He's like, God loves you, and God is all these wonderful things to you, and they're all excited. And then he's like, God hates you, and these are all terrible things, and you're, you, God doesn't want to listen to your prayers. And, and, and it keeps going like this to the point where Peter turns to Jesus and says, 
Lord, sometimes you, you draw us close to the kingdom of God, and other times you're throwing us out of it. What are, what are we supposed to do with that? How are we supposed to understand you? And um, then Jesus replies, well, why are you so dumb? Haven't you figured it out? <laughs> why haven't you figured this out already? You've been with me long enough. I already told I already gave you the rule. I already taught it to you. If I say something bad, reject it. Mm. And just embrace what's good. Mm. And that sounds absolutely radical <laughs> when you just read that out of context by itself. But when you put it into context with all the stories we're talking about, ah, actually, those early Christians were remembering this tradition. In fact, that's the one explicit example I know of where the early Christians reference the idea, the concept of rejecting something God says uh, because it's, it's not in line. Like they knew this as a motif, as a concept that, you know, if you hear something that goes contrary to God's character, you reject it because mm. that's what Christ taught. So, so really quick um, on that particular, uh, I guess, um, front, I, I've always found it interesting that the early church, well, okay, first the disciples, just I want you to 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 give me a cosign on this. The disciples at large believe the Messiah was going to be a political figure in that they were going to restore Israel's in- independence and at that particular time from from Rome. Is that would that be an accurate way of saying it or or some type of king like a re- uh, a restoration of King David almost would be the way of thinking of it. Is that fair? I would say that it is fair to say that uh, the desires for the most of the Jews at that time was for a militaristic yep. uh, Messiah. But I'd also say that it's kind of funny when you start digging into it. Um, most of the Jews apparently were hoping for two Messiahs, not one. One they thought would be a priestly Messiah and another Messiah would be a militaristic one. And uh, they had very complicated ideas about what they were expecting for all of it to happen. Uh, and it's very interesting to realize. And there are, I mean, it's debatable, like, for instance, in in the book of First Enoch, in the parables of Enoch, there is a reference, a passage that could be understood to refer to the death of the chosen one that it's predicting. Um, but some, but most scholars don't see it that way. Um, and even if it did, it doesn't mean that anybody at that time we know of did embrace that interpretation. So even okay. if there was one random person. So what we really do get the impression of is that for the most part, uh, whether they imagine two or one Messiah, um, they are pretty much imagining a Messiah who's going to set Israel back on the throne. Yes. Is, like you said, going to put them in charge over the Gentiles. Okay. So, so Jesus shatters that paradigm. <laughs> by, by inviting the Gentiles in, but then also not really being too concerned with the power dynamics of the day. Fair? I mean, yeah. I mean, you think about the power dynamics, even on an authority level with Jesus. You have in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus uh, turning, uh, there's a lawyer, or I forget, there's somebody who in the crowd goes ahead and says, hey, uh, Lord, um, I need, you know, the law says this in the scriptures, and um, my sibling, my brother, does not want to um, does not want to comply with God's law. Uh, will you please, uh, from your position of authority as a teacher, will you please instruct him to do what the law says? And Jesus turns to the person and says, "Who made me a judge over you?" Yeah. 
I'm not your judge. I don't, I don't decide how you read scripture. I don't decide how you apply it. Mm. It's a fascinating scripture, a fascinating quote. It's actually also found in a slightly alternate form in the gospel of Thomas. So we know it was part of the oral tradition that was floating around. But again, it's a fascinating portrait of a Jesus who is so radically into people trying to figure things out that he's unwilling to tell them how to apply the law. It's like, I'm not going to tell you, like he tells the hypocrites, you know, okay, you're, you're, you're screwing up. You're not, you're not getting the character of God, but on a fine point of interpretation, he's like, why are you looking to me to give you an answer? (laughs) Figure it out. Yeah. Very interesting. I, I, I love thinking about Jesus as, um, someone who is interested enough to allow the journey and process to yield the results instead of just a definitive statement. Now, I, I, that's not to say Jesus doesn't make definitive statements because I oh, think he does. He does. Yeah. But I guess I'm saying it seems like Jesus is also willing to be patient to allow the process to yield, um, you know, just thought and and open up concern for the other. But okay, so where I was going with that though was it seems like Jesus undoes this militaristic Messiah um, by dying, obviously. But what I find interesting is the early Christians see that and also see the words of Jesus championing peace and nonviolence as a call to, to live that way. Um, and they largely do. Now, they're not in a position of authority, so they, you could argue they don't have any other choice but to live that way and to, to be martyred. But then as Constantine comes on the scene and the, the, the church and the state unite in a lot of ways, we see the end of, I guess, the nonviolent understanding of the words of Jesus. And I guess you could, I mean, I would say uh, a pairing of Christianity with power, which I believe from that point on, and this is just my personal belief, I don't know where you stand on this, but from that point on, a lot of the words of Jesus are diluted for the sake of power and position and politics, you know, curious what you think about that as someone who studied these things and studied that first, you know, little bit of Christianity. Um, do you see that as a problem as that, like const that when Constantine merges, you know, and not that it was just Constantine, but that, that when that merge with empire happens, that Christianity is diluted. Yeah. I think that like the, I, the issue is I don't think there's anything intrinsically wrong necessarily with the fact that the Roman Empire embraced Christianity. It's not like uh, the, the moment that your enemy suddenly becomes your friend, the gospel's lost. It's more to do with the fact that inevitably human beings, when they start to encounter power, absolute power begins to corrupt. Mm-hmm. You know, yep. uh, People like to silence those that they disagree with uh, you know, I, I, it's only natural that in the first few centuries, Christians were bickering and debating with each other about theology, but they didn't have the ability, except through popular opinion, to like get rid of it. Um, so when you suddenly give them the power of the state to make it a lot less attractive for p- 
people who disagree with you to still have the same freedoms, well, then obviously that becomes kind of problematic because now it's not just popular opinion that decides whether or not a theological view goes out of, you know, sync. It's now you have the power of the state. You know, no, Gnostics were not popular for two reasons. One, they didn't want to be. Right? The whole idea of being Gnostic was basically to say, like, we're the special people, and that's why we're a minority, and no one has our secret wisdom from our secret books that we keep secret. Like, the whole point of the secret is that's why they're not in the New Testament. Yeah. <laughs> they were never candidates. You know, the Gospel of Judas was intended to be a special secret book that somebody secretly read. It was, you know, it, no Gnostic would have been like, let's send these books out to get in the canon. Like, that, that would kind of go against the whole point of what the books were, were intending themselves for yes so but that's people popularly rejected that now marcionism that had more more effect that that grew in popularity in large degrees but again it wasn't a secret cult that was a mainstream uh, approach as an alternative to like the proto-orthodox christians and that got a lot of going with it but Marcionism died out largely because of a lack of popularity. It had its moment, and then there were people who argued against it, and their views kind of won out, it seems, given my limited knowledge of that period. And uh, people just slowly kind of backed away. Same thing kind of like with First Enoch. First Enoch wasn't cast out of the canon because uh, people were told to. It was people liked it because they used to interpret Genesis 6 in the way that it did. And then around the time of Augustine, you had alternative proposals for how to understand the sons of God and daughters of men. And once people thought those ideas were better, first Enoch's proposal about the sons of God didn't make sense anymore. So it became not popular. Um, you know, that's a very democratic way of which theology shifts and grows and changes. When you suddenly give power to the state to, and the church to make those decisions, it's a lot less clean, you know, you're, you're now you go into the realm of deciding for people whether or not an idea is worth their time. And that mm. rarely leads to good theological growth. So, you know, in one sense, the dark ages are really dark just because people aren't given that freedom to really see ideas and debate them anymore. They're left to a select few who already have their specific prejudices. Um, and I think that's, that's definitely something you have to kind of learn from and be wary of because, you know, those are, those are things that still can pop up in our day. They st there are people who still want that kind of approach. They think that the answer is I can just silence all the people who are wrong. Uh, and maybe they are wrong. Maybe they are. But the thing is, if you silence the people who are wrong, the people who are right tend not to grow better. It's a funny ecosystem. You need the people who are wrong in order to keep pushing you to get better at what you're doing, right? You don't really understand how to refine your message until you're in a fire that requires you to refine it. Uh, so, you know, unfortunately, you need, it's not, it's not like when Jesus uh, tells the parable of the, um, of the uh, weeds and the, and the, the oh god my vocabulary is leaving me the uh what do you call grain okay fine the grain. wheat uh, the wheat the weeds in the wheat. there we go yeah, yeah. That, yeah tears in the wheat there yeah. we go uh man my brain failed me it's okay but the point is when you have that parable sure jesus says you know don't try to tear up the weeds because it could hurt the the uh, it could hurt the crops uh the wheat the point is is that there's also the aspect that um in a human perspective, right? 
we do better by always having uh, confrontations near us because it makes us stronger. That's kind of the whole point of like the confrontational theology we've been exploring in those stories is that people are learning by being confronted. They are kind of passing in an important rite of passage. So in many ways, theology is only made better because of a larger discussion. And that's also something people in politics like to point out, like the more uh, wide spectrum of political beliefs are represented in your government, the more likely that the confrontations between each other lead to really good stuff happening. Um, if you get too ideologically pure or things don't, if you don't have that confrontation, that loyal opposition as it's called in Europe, um, you will, fail to have something healthy growing. Hmm. Um, you also mentioned, though, earlier, the idea of uh, Jesus's peacefulness, the idea of peacekeeping. Um, it's really interesting, though, like Jesus as nonviolent. There, we, okay, like on the one hand, we know Jesus was understood to be nonviolent. Uh, John Dominic Crossan gives a brilliant reason for why we can know that just because by virtue of the fact that the disciples are never hunted down. They're never, they didn't come to arrest the disciples. So had Rome thought that Jesus was a violent Messiah, as Riza Aslan tries to argue in his book Zealot, um, if that was really the historical Jesus, that he was a, a violent zealot who was going to start an uprising, the disciples would have been arrested as key players in that uprising. And, and they're in hiding after Jesus. Exactly. Because they, 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 sure, they, they, think, they think that could very well be the response. Not that that's a reason that they were seen as violent, but that that they do think there's potential cause for them to be arrested right. yeah. and not all of them hide thomas according to john doesn't hide yeah. he's going outside to get supplies and so forth um but the thing that is very clear is that when the romans come to, to arrest people they don't come to arrest uh the disciples yes they yeah. only needed uh they only needed to be identified with judas who was jesus amongst them um so that's important according to crossan uh because he just helped it helps us to understand jesus was most definitely understood to be nonviolent. Yeah. But what's interesting is when we look at Jesus as a teacher, he doesn't necessarily come across always as nonviolent. Uh, we have the statements that like, you know, I, I'm, I'm good friends with, uh, with Keith, uh, Keith Giles, and, and he goes ahead and will talk about, um, he loves to talk about the nonviolent view of Jesus, and, and he will bring up these texts constantly that are in the Gospels that promote this view, and obviously lots of people know them well. But there are other texts in the Bible that do seem to present uh, a violent idea of Jesus. Uh, Jesus uh, goes ahead and tells the disciples they need to buy swords at one point. Jesus um, goes ahead and, and does a number of interesting things. We even know in the Gospel of Thomas, for those that are really curious, there's a parable there that's not in any of the uh, synoptic Gospels but many scholars believe it's an authentic parable of Jesus that was preserved in the oral tradition. And that's a parable about an assassin. And it basically is like, you know, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like someone who wanted to kill a powerful man. And so he threw his sword into the wall and made sure that he had the will to put it through. And then he went to go find the man and kill him. And many New Testament scholars would say that probably is an authentic parable of Jesus because it's just so absurd that anybody after Jesus would have thought to have made it up. It's just, it doesn't fit his, it doesn't fit the tradition. It doesn't fit the mold in which it went. So it's one of those weird parables where you're like, it probably is authentic just because 
no one would have thought to make it up. Like it doesn't serve any purpose. See, so so my response to that, because I am, I, I do, I would ascribe to the nonviolent Jesus would be that even even that parable is not Jesus advocating for violence, but using violent imagery, which is simply the imagery of the day. Uh, the same as like he would use the imagery of crops and farming and other um, very uh, relevant images to the culture that that, depending upon who his audience was for that particular um, parable, uh, that, oh, I that, agree. That I'm, not, I'm not a... necessarily arguing that it means he was violent. No, yeah, yeah. But, but there's an argument to be made to where Jesus uses violent imagery or calls the disciples to get swords. Well, um, what I mean is I can take it even further. You're interpreting, and, and that's an important point, you're interpreting it yes, as if Jesus is using a violent imagery. But what if Jesus is just explicitly contradicting himself? What if Jesus is presenting a violent view of what the kingdom of God is. And the reason I ask that is, do you have that parable in the synoptic gospels? No, you don't. It was rejected. Now here we have an interesting case of a parable that probably Jesus told, but no one preserved except Thomas. Could so it have what been does that rejected? Mean? Could it have been rejected because that's not who God is? Exactly. <laughs> it's possible. Your interpretation could be very true. But the funny thing is, is according to the Gospels, Jesus was known to be super confusing because no one could figure him out. Yeah. And the version we get in the Gospels when we read Jesus doesn't sound like that. But whenever they describe what the crowds actually heard, they say that no one understood him. And one explanation for that might be that Jesus would at times contradict what he was saying. I mean, we actually have references to that even in the Gospels we have currently. For instance, we have Jesus with the Canaanite woman. He literally contradicts what he told the disciples in chapter 10 when he's speaking to the Canaanite woman later. He ends up contradicting it. And we see that as a pedagogical tool. But there's other things as well where Jesus will say in one place, I think it's in Matthew, he goes ahead and he says, well, um, when you do good deeds, make sure, I think it's during the Sermon of the Mount, he says, when you do good deeds, do them in public so that God can be praised. Yeah, and then and don't then, let your right hand know what your left and, hand's doing. And then the next next chapter, he says, you know, don't let your right hand, your left hand know. Don't, don't let people know what you're doing. Those yeah. are contradictory ideas. It's very hard to do both. You have also the case that Jesus is famous for saying, don't lend things out at interest. That's also preserved in the Gospel of Thomas in a different version. Um, and yet you'll also have in the very same gospel, Jesus telling stories about the kingdom of heaven, where seemingly the, the guy you think would be God is, is requiring interest. Yep. And again, like you see this constant confusion about like using contradictory images and what you constantly, according to Mark, what, what, what Jesus tells the disciples is, I specifically tell things to the public in a way so that they won't understand things. But I tell you these things plainly so that you'll figure it out. So the question is to say, like, I mean, that's a very, they're trying, Mark is trying to root it in a passage in Isaiah to make sense of it, where Isaiah says, oh, I'm going to send messages that no one understands because of their hard hearts, et cetera. But the, the interesting question is to say here, right, like there are things in scripture, in the gospels that you could come to understand Jesus as violent. Uh, you could support that view just like you could support God as violent. 
Um, you could go the Riza Aslan route and try to argue he was a zealous uprising. You know, maybe you could pull those things together. The interesting question is to ask the question from the Apocryphon of James. You know, Peter says, well, what are we supposed to do, Lord? One moment you're drawing us towards the kingdom of heaven and the next moment you're pushing us away. Well, Jesus says, you're supposed to reject the bad. You know that already. Hmm. So to a certain degree, it's very interesting just on the issue of nonviolent, that when you make what you think is a basic claim about who God is or who Jesus is, you also have to already figure out what Jesus's character is because you have to start making decisions between those contradictions. And I think it's fun and exciting to imagine that Jesus in his earthly ministry was a character who liked to provoke people. That Definitely. he was someone who was like, all right, crowd, you've been following me around from place to place <laughs> to place. Do you yet figure out what I am? Right. And, and the yeah. funny thing is Jesus is always coming to the disciples and saying, do you still not understand? Do you still not get it? So I do think that um, as much as it's possible to imagine that Jesus is just using the imagery, it's also very possible that Jesus is in these cases explicitly saying something and looking to see how will you react? Like I've said all this other stuff. Now I say this, like, what, what's your response? Are you going to be like that Canaanite woman and come back at me That's and good. I'm going to praise you? I didn't think about it like that. That's a good way of thinking about that story. I mean, I, I tend to think of the story of them getting swords as, um, you know, uh, I have a very difficult time believing that, uh, <laughs> well, when they actually use the swords, Jesus condemns them for doing it, which I think is interesting. <laughs> so then right. it becomes the yep. question of, did Jesus want them to say no to the swords? Yep. Uh, as they're, as, legitimate, as yeah. they're falling asleep praying, it actually fits your motif in that Jesus gives them an option, an opportunity to say no to him when he tells them to get swords. I haven't thought about it through that lens, but it makes sense because Jesus then, you know, condemns them for using the swords when they use it. So, uh, I, I mean, I've always explained it away more from the standpoint and not explained it away, but thought of it more as Jesus attempting to fulfill prophecy that, you know, the, the, the prophecy that I think there's some prophecy in there. That... And there's always, there's always that conflict you have to deal with, which is there's the gospel writer and then there's Jesus. Exactly. And, and there's always those two layers like, okay, is this a story entirely by the gospel writer or is the gospel writer trying to interpret a story yeah. about Jesus he knew? Yeah. So there's those two layers. Are we talking is... about the story before the gospel writer tries to tie it to a prophecy Yes. or, you know, so there's always those is the is is levels. the is the author giving a wink and a nod here or is this an actual detail of you know the story yeah exactly yeah that's a it's always important to to think through that matthew this has been a great conversation man time just flew by uh <laughs> why don't you tell people um give them i mean obviously we've given them a lot of reasons to pick up your book you you really know the bible and i think this idea that you're that you're sharing is is, is really good of like um, saying no to God. I think it's a, it's a definitely a provocative title, but um, I do think that approach to the Bible is something worth considering. If people want to buy you, buy your book, where, where should they go? Amazon? Is that the best place to get it? I, I don't know if it's the best place to go get it, but it's certainly the place most people get it. Yeah. Uh, seems to be the best for them. <laughs> um, so the book is uh, available wherever books are sold. You can get it on Barnes and Noble. You can get it at at Kobo, you can get it at, at Amazon if that's where you want to. Um, 
uh, certainly there's, uh, if you want to see more information on the book or see an interview with me, you can go to the book's website, which is uh, www.sayingnotogod.com. Great. Um, that, that would be a great place if people want to just get more info. And, and there's links there to each of the places where the book can be. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely, um, for people who are wondering like, okay, well, is that, is that mostly everything that was in the book? Is like, <laughs> did you already just cover it? No, I didn't. I didn't. I assure you people will get annoyed. We didn't talk about Abraham. We didn't talk about Job. We didn't. In fact, in my book, I actually give an entirely new interpretation of Abraham's sacrifice with Isaac. Oh, wow. That completely turns the story upside down. Hmm. So that's the second chapter. Um, so no, there's plenty of stuff. And in fact, everything we've talked about in this uh, interview has all been entirely the first half of the book, uh, the stuff drawn from. The second half of the book deals with things like, what do we do about practical issues like hell, belief in uh, a violent God in the Old Testament? Uh, what do we do with orthodoxy? Where do we go in regards to issues like universal salvation? The book goes in lots of exciting and fun other directions that's um, great take concept. So if anyone's like, man, that was cool, but did I already get most of the concepts? No, nah, you barely touched it. There's plenty in that book that you'll be like, if you like this stuff, there's plenty more you'll like. Matthew, thank you so much. And I'll put all the links in the show notes so that people can, can uh, easily find that stuff. Thank you for your time today in this conversation. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for inviting me to be here. Uh, I was just an honor to get to have this conversation because honestly, it was really rich. And also, I just want to thank anybody who's listening and took the time to reach this end of the interview. Man, you have a lot of driving time to listen to things. Uh, and two, um, apparently, it wasn't boring enough for you to switch off. So if you reach this point, I feel honored that you cared enough. And I really thank you, truly, from the bottom of my heart. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matthew. All right. Thank you. Hey, I'm so excited you could join me for this episode of the podcast. Huge thanks to Matthew Cortman for joining me on the podcast today. Please consider buying his book, Saying No to God. Also, Matthew has an online course he is providing. It is very affordable and starting in the next week or so. Please consider checking that out and maybe even signing up for it. The links for the book and the course are in the show notes. Also, give Matthew a follow on Facebook or Twitter. I include those links as well. And as always, you can find those show notes in the description of the podcast wherever you're listening or at pastorjustindouglas.com. Also, I have a Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash beyond boundaries podcast. If you're able to support the show financially, that would be amazing. You can also show your support by subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing. Getting the word out and reviewing it really does make a difference. It means a lot to me, and I'm thankful uh, and just uh, amazed whenever you guys actually take the time to review and share these things with your networks. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas, and championing belonging.